whatever I am. I'm yours. The only question remains. Will you yield? In time? Welcome to the second episode of Adaptation Nation, and it's our second crack at this. I'm here with Vanessa Diaz. Let's Remus! Just, Sorry, I had to. Let's just say that Q would not have been pleased with our technical performance uh, over the last couple of days. We are here to talk about the book and movie of Casino Royale, Ian Fleming's first Bond novel, and Daniel Craig's first Bond movie. And we're doing this uh, because a Vanessa and I both really like... Daniel Craig's James Bond, James Bond books writ large, but also recently um, Daniel Craig gave his swan song as James Bond. I have not seen the movie Vanessa has. We'll get that at the end um, about what the, what it may or may not portent. We will spoil the the tailored suit out of the Casino Royale, but we will not <laughs> touch that movie, so don't worry about it there. Uh, Vanessa, before we d- jump into it, let's do let's do our own backstories with James Bond. You go first because you 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 started this for a very specific reason. Your journey with James Bond it was a, it was a bonding moment, if I, I might say. It was, yeah. So when I was a kid, I was you know a giant book nerd since I was born, and my dad was very supportive of that. But then once my brother was born, you know they just were very like bonded over like their love of sports, and I was like basically just trying to find a way to insert myself in the conversation. <laughs> um, and my dad loved, as I now do, like what we we collectively just call like the our fizz bang boom movies and so my love for Vaughn definitely started with films in addition to stuff like Indiana Jones and um, you know all the like Bourne movies eventually our, our first love of that kind of stuff was definitely Bond so we bonded over Bond and I've been um, I think it, was, it wasn't until like sixth grade that one of my teachers actually pulled me aside and said like oh so you know those are books right I was like pardon and then you know went to the library and read most of them pretty quickly <laughs> So this was pre-Craig. Did you have a favorite Bond experience pre-Craig? Because both of us, well, get this on the table now, Craig is our favorite Bond. But before Absolutely. we got to the the hatchet-faced man that is Daniel Craig, did you have a favorite before that? You know, when we were, like when I was really young, it was at the time, I guess, Sean Connery, because that's like kind of what got me first interested. And then it feels like every Bond that came after that, I was like, no, I like that guy better. So I definitely <laughs> loved Pierce Brosnan while he was Bond. But now that Daniel Craig has, you know, come into it, like there is, so sorry, Pierce, but like no other. Like, I, he is my favorite Bond by like leaps and bounds. Yeah, mine too. I would say before there was a Craig Bond, I, really, I wasn't a Bond person. When not, you know, the the Casino Royale came out in 2006, and I was 28 at the time. And so the Brosnan run was really the 10 years before that. So in my, mm-hmm. I'm in high school and college. And I don't know how to say this. for, And it tells you something about me or the cultural moment of the 90s or whatever. But Bond was not cool at that moment to me. Like that was a dad-grandpa franchise. And the things that were happening in the popular culture, look, I was no, like, I didn't know what was going on. But I was watching, you know, Pulp Fiction, Born Identity, Seven, like grittier kinds of movies. And Bond was just too slick. It didn't seem, I don't know, related to anything that I really cared about. It was this older, colder war version of spy and espionage. And especially coming out of September 11th, it was like, 
what are you doing, Pierce? Like, that's just not the world we feel like we live in anymore. And then when the trailer for Casino Royale came out, I had seen Layer Cake uh, with, with Daniel Craig in it. Was, he basically plays a rough guy, and he plays Bond as a rough of a guy as you're ever going to allow Bond to be. I was like, oh, this feels fresh, and this feels new, and it feels relevant in a way that it have never felt that way before recently, I could, well, recently it was nine years ago. Good lord, <laughs> <laughs> I for I don't I don't remember why, but they went. I went. I decided to go and read all the original Ian Fleming's Bond novels, and I wrote a piece about it on the site. I'll put it in the show mm-hmm. notes here, and then power ranked basically which the best of the Bond novels were. And for the, for me, Casino Royale was number three. Moonraker was number one. Um, you can read about why that there. The Moonraker movie is terrible, and it's actually very very not what's in the book but so bad. the other thing that's interesting here well what's interesting let's let's get into the book i guess now that we've done our backstory so vanessa what's interesting about casino royale why are we especially interested in casino royale here i mean for me definitely it's because it's the first right and yeah. um meaningfully especially if you i think yeah i think particularly if your experience with bond has been to do kind of like how i did it even if you know later on to go from like films and work backwards is just especially important in really laying the groundwork for like who Bond becomes eventually, like yes. what his motivations are, etc. So it's important for several reasons, but for me, it, it, it a lot of it is definitely rooted in like why did Bond become who he became? Yeah, it's actually fairly surprising if your experience was like mine, which is the last Bond uh, yep. Bond that you were seeing, or the one that was the Bond of my coming of age, which is Brosnan. Probably the slickest Bond Pierce was. I mean Connery. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Pierce Brosnan looked like he was supposed to... He was born wearing a tuxedo. Yeah. Whereas, <laughs> yeah. You know, so there, there's a way... And then you read the read the Bond of Casino Royale, and it's just a different kind of a person. So that's very interesting, too. And as we get into talking about the movie, it's a fascinating and opportune and really serendipitous moment for the Bond franchise and the powers that be that own the IP for Bond to say we have a chance to reimagine what Bond looks like in this particular property for reasons that are legalistic and have to do with copyright and, and early rights negotiations. We'll get that into in a minute. Made it available for the first time. So they hadn't used, they haven't shot that bullet, so to speak, of looking at Bond's backstory and trying to reframe to some degree. I mean, it, it's within the sphere of Bond that you would expect. But on I think on one end of the spectrum there as well. Let's talk about the origin of Bond and Ian Fleming just a little bit. This is this is where I like to live. I would do six hours just on like what happened before the pen, or in this case, the <laughs> typewriter stroke actually yes. ha- happened. Ian Fleming, you know, he's a British guy, and he served in naval intelligence in the British Secret Service. I don't even know if it was called the Secret Service then. I think it was a little bit like there was no CIA during World War II, and it really came afterwards. But <laughs> yeah. served in naval intelligence there, um, and very manifestly wanted to write a new kind of genre. I mean, basically invented the spy novel as we know it. And I think if you think of it in those terms as the spy novel as an evolution of hard-boiled fiction, remember this first book came out in 1953, so we're only 10 years away from like the Maltese Falcon and Sam Spade and Dashiell Hammett and Bogart and Casablanca, like that kind of noirish vibe really carry through into Casino Royale. I think it surprised me and it would surprise a lot of other people that come to James Bond writ large. And Casino Royale, the movie captures a lot of the emotional beats and plot beats, but I think it mood, it does not capture the mood of Casino Royale, the book like we're used to. After that, it was a hit pretty quickly. Um, It sold out its first three print runs, but you can tell it was a pretty low rent 
I mean, publishing was different there in the in the mid '50s to early '50s, where Fleming designed his own cover. Like the original cover for Casino Royale is Ian Fleming's design, which is a really weird thing to think about now. Here's a debut author, and we're going to have them design their own cover. Never would happen in this particular way. Bond himself is an amalgam of people that Fleming apparently knew, and principal among which, which is brother Peter, who I apparently idolized. And it was kind of a combination of Peter Fleming's personality and Humphrey Bogart's looks, apparently, that he was trying to capture in the prose descriptions of Bond. I don't know about you, Vanessa. This is maybe a bit of a side jaunt. Whenever people give really detailed descriptions of what someone looks like, it completely blows by me. If you give me height and sort of coloring, I'm kind of done. Like when you're like, and he had these sharp cheekbones that went at a 94 degree angle. And he looked like he had just seen a a raspberry for the first time. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. So I'm not very good. I'm not a good judge for this. But people have looked, people have looked and said what the, the origin there was. And from there, like very early Fleming wanted to make a bunch of money. Um, but he wanted, he said, there's this one quote that I read that he goes, like, I don't think the James Bond books are capital L literature, but I'd like to have some literary pleasures in it for people that read that way. And I think Casino Royale definitely does. And then from there, it became, you know, it became a, a franchise writ large. We talked in our first go around with this, and I'm going to throw it to you here for a second, talk about the actual writing process for how Fleming would write these Bond novels. I think you and I are very much like, nice work if you can get it. So how, how did Fleming go about writing these Bond novels one after another? I mean, he basically was, like, locked up in a beautiful Jamaican villa and was like, I'm going to write some stuff. And then he just did. <laughs> like, which he is did. maybe the TLDR version. But, like, that's what he did. And what You know, it's not, like, the painstaking writing no. process that I feel like you get the sense of now. Literally, I mean, the, the villa still exists. Like, they actually did a lot of press um, for the new film, like, at the villa. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just funny that he, yeah, was like, I, he just busted out the typewriter. He was like, I'm about to just, I'm going to sit here. I'm going to bang this out and that that's what he did (laughs) he did he would go for like six weeks and Mm -hmm. he'd write him he'd write the book he'd write for three hours in the morning take a couple hour break do another hour in the afternoon and he said he never rewrote he never went back to read while he was writing i don't know what the actual revision i mean there's something to be said for that i guess you know it is the the other side of the the tony morrison i rewrite 15 each sentence 15 times which is something i heard her say at a lecture that i've never for never forgotten and probably who people listen to the book right podcast heard me say that before but this ain't that and that's fine it's a different thing it doesn't need to be the the same um production method to get into it but i think there is a speed to the reading experience that i i think must have been related to the writing experience yeah. another thing that i think I don't know. I've looked around for this, and this is not the kind of thing that exists in history books or anything else, but I think he may have invented or at least popularized the short chapter with the various obvious cliffhanger at the end of a chapter. Super, yeah. That really turns it into a, you know, train car reading experience. It's like one after another and after another. And, you know, I think most famously popularized and weaponized by the Da Vinci Code, um, I think, is the the zenith of that particular experience, almost to a reducto ad absurdum sort of point of view. But it has that sort of propulsive reading experience that certainly wasn't true of the detective fiction of of his day. It wasn't that wasn't that wasn't true of those other things. So that's an interesting innovation there. I think we're going to get to some of the Casino Royale stuff here as well. But I think another thing to know about Fleming that you'll see and maybe is an interesting way of looking at Bond is he also cares about details, about stuff, about food, oh. about drink, about clothes <laughs> in his own life. And then it really comes through in the book. He liked the ladies and had an experience. He, you know, he had a reputation of his own kind. He is not Bond, but 
a lot of the things that he clearly revels in writing about in the book were things he liked himself. And it's no mistake. I think my favorite little detail is as he was finishing Casino Royale, before actually he even finished it, he bought himself as a reward, prize, or something else, a custom gold-plated typewriter um, mm-hmm. that in inflation-adjusted inflation dollars would cost about $3,000 uh, today. So that kind of detail-oriented thing is uh, really, really baked in from the beginning. Let's talk about the plot of Casino Royale. Who is Bond when we meet um, uh, when we meet him at first in uh, Casino Royale, Vanessa? I mean, he's kind of nobody. I mean, not nobody. He is a double O, which you know means that he has a bit, he's committed. Uh, he's he's killed in cold blood is like the way that they describe it. Yes. So he's done that like you know at least twice. But he is super green. He is not at all the very slick, super assured, can get himself out of any situation kind of bond that you may be associating with that character. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, brought newly on to this thing sort of because like, oh, well, we heard you can gamble. I mean, <laughs> just yeah. maybe a simplification, but like kind of. Kind of and, not, though. I mean, right? you're, like, yeah. you're, the, you're the best gambler in the service. He's like, okay. <laughs> Guess I'll do that. So right. he's, yeah, like a very, very unpolished version of Bond. And that's, that's again, a departure, I think, from what people might be thinking about. It's kind of his first real mission. The, the two mm-hmm. kills that he gets earlier, we don't get much description of them, but they no. seem very, like, matter-of-fact. Like, here's a dude, go get him. Yeah. Uh, and this is more elaborate. And there's some cockamaminess to the plot here. And the plot, if you've seen the movie... Well, certainly if you've read the book, is is fairly similar. There's a guy, a main villain, um, Lashif, his name is the same in the book, mm-hmm. who is a intermediary in the the fight that Bond is is fighting, which is part of the Cold War. And basically he is in charge of a bunch of unions um, on the French border with Germany, and he's in charge of all the union money, and Lashif has taken the union fees, or dues apparently, and invested them in a string of brothels uh, in France. Mm-hmm. And this isn't necessarily bad in itself, but what happens is the French government then changes the prostitution laws, and now this is all illicit behavior, and he loses all of this money. Uh-oh. So now he's on the hook to unions, which are, in the book, de facto arms of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And the thinking is, if we can discredit Le Chief, get him out of the business, then his whole organization is going to crumble. And if there ever comes a time when the Soviet Union invades this fifth column of this union string of unions is going to crumble. In our experience of Bond, this is very, very low stakes. There is no Super. one s- sitting in a lava lair with rockets that are going to destroy Western Europe. It's like three ifs down the road. And even if it is like, really, that's what we're doing. Like if they happen to invade, there'll be f- slightly fewer people available yeah. for a war or revolution. So that's how small time it really is. And even inflation adjusted amount of dollars we're talking about, it was like 50,000 pounds, I think, that Lashif is trying to win back yep. at the card tables at the Casino Royale. And that's a lot different than the $100 million stakes they're playing for in the movie version of Casino Royale. So this is, and M, M isn't even in this book. Like, no, I mean, like very, very on the edge. It's like you get them at the beginning and at the end. <laughs> and yeah. that's pretty much it. Yeah. There's like three intermediaries between Bond and anybody else there. There's no Q, there's no money penny, there's really no gadgetry on Bond's side. Nope. The only the only gadget he has are a couple of guns that seem sort of standard issue and they're not even gadgets. Yeah. He, and he's driving his own car that he mm-hmm. maintains himself, a nineteen thirty three Aston Martin. So it's very, very low down on the scale. And again, in the movie version, he's still new and he makes some mistakes early yeah. in the movie to, that puts him on the wrong side of M. But there's very much that he's in the business of proving himself. And by the end of both of them, 
we're led to believe that he is not just a double O, but sort of made his bones psychologically with M and the, um, yeah. and the resources writ large. I guess another thing we, we should talk about, too, is Bond is bad at his job in the book. Or he's not, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't do Bond things. He doesn't no. do Bond things. Like, wh- what's his biggest achievement in the book, Vanessa? Like, what's the big, like, Bond is good at his job moment in the book? Uh, I mean, he ultimately, I mean, he wins, like he, get, you know, he wins at the Baccarat game. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, right. You know, <laughs> yeah, like, that's it. Like, but he first, he first he loses, first he loses all exactly. of the treasury's money. All of the money, all of it. And he's like, well, <laughs> guess I'll go home now. Yeah. And, and the Bac- daddy CIA has to like bail him out. So. Right. Yeah. Felix Leiter, similarly to the movie, comes in and says, yeah, I'll give you another shake. Baccarat is the game of choice in the book. And it's one of the better changes in the movie because Baccarat is a, I think the easiest way to think about it is kind of a version of, of Blackjack. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly luck, right? It's a mostly Super. luck game. Yeah. So there's a lot of spin of the wheel. There is one move where he's at the Baccarat table and one of the Smirsh, yeah. I guess it's not even Smirsh henchmen. It's one of Lashiv's henchmen Lashiv, comes up, yeah. gun to the back in public, and Bond pulls off a little maneuver to get him off him subtly. But that's that's really he gets his butt kicked multiple times. He goes chasing after, and Vesper is the part we haven't really talked about. And that's the most important part here. He, yeah. goes, he goes chasing after Vesper Lind, kind of blindly falls for a trap, um, gets his nutsack just worked uh, just repeatedly. I don't know what else to say. Really, really tough hang uh, for Bond on the cane chair <laughs> with Lashif. Just works on two. Uh, Only yeah, okay. gets out because Smirsh comes to kill Lashif mm-hmm. and because of a I guess a clerical error they're not licensed to also kill Bond even though he is an English spy they just sort Which of let him I've, there just for a second find the most hilarious detail that like if you're in the business of shady killings that in that particular moment you're like no 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 but there's rules <laughs> like oh okay like sure <laughs> I but guess fine. if you're a Soviet Soviet butt man, you don't freelance, Vanessa. I, guess. I think I, <laughs> I, you're writing reports in triplicate, and you can't be. Oh yeah, and there was this random English dude that I also popped. You're gonna I go guess. to Siberia for that. It just it made me laugh every time. I was like, no, no, you can stay. Right. <laughs> like, uh, but the most important thing uh, I think here is that the figure of Vesper Lind, uh, the weirdly the first Bond girl who defies mm-hmm. all the conventions of a Bond girl, and yet also. Yep. Lives up to some of them. Describe Bond's relationship to to Vesper, Vanessa. So Vesper is the money, as we know. Like, she's got the the treasure. She's the one, you know, in theory there to, like, look over the funds that have been released for him to, you know, play with. But she's a very, like, reserved, um, you know, there's a lot of descriptions of her that kind of lend to this. But she's, yeah, very, very reserved, I guess is the easiest way to put it. And is kind of there to make it very clear that, like, she's there to do one thing and one thing only. Mm-hmm. And that, to some extent, is also similar in the in the films. But yeah, we just get this very particular picture of Vesper as being like a very attractive person, but someone who's in theory not there to like play ga- you know games. <laughs> she's, yeah. she's there for the money. In Bond's reaction to meeting Vesper, why do I have this woman that's a part of this? They should be home mm-hmm. in the kitchen. Really sexist, misogynist stuff coming Super. out of Bond. A very but very tough look for our boy Super. when we begin. And that flips on him because I don't, it's never said that Vesper is intentionally behaving that way, but he cannot see through his misogyny to see that other things are going on. Some of the stuff that she does that she, he finds ludicrous and irresponsible are actually part of a bigger plan because Mm -hmm. Vesper is a double agent for Smirsh. Smirsh has captured her fella, uh, a Polish fighter pilot 
and basically blackmailing her to do her to do their bidding. Their bidding, so, yeah. I should say smirsh is a it's kind of a funny word, right? But it's a it's, it's a it's a conflation <laughs> of some Russian words that means death to all spies. It's Soviet counterintelligence, right? Yeah. They're the they're the spy hunters for the Soviet counterintelligence. And they are there to hunt Bond, right? They're there to hunt Bond and take down Lashif because they're pissed at Lashif. And they think he's reckless. And it turns out if you take all of you, if you're going to invest in brothels and then try to win your money back at Baccarat, which is essentially a coin flip, maybe they're right. Uh, the Lashif should be out of the game there as well. And the long story short is that Vesper and Bond fall in love. Um, James Bond gets, gets worked uh, like short crust pastry there <laughs> for a while. And then he, he is, while he's recuperating, Vesper is there. She knows, even though we don't, there's there's some irony in this, that she is responsible, at least to some degree, for Bond's condition and has a little bit of a Florence Nightingale effect. I also think really likes him um, anyway. They fall in love, and they're both ready to go on the run, and they do go on the run. And it turns out that Vesper realizes she's in a no-win situation, that either she, she definitely is going to die, she realizes, and the best... Yep. The other things that can happen is Bond is going to die or a bunch of other people are going to die along the way. So at the end of the book, she drinks some sort of whatever pill, dies, and leaves Bond this, I don't know, one of the absolute crushing genre notes of all time. I mean, kind of an mm. E.M. Forrester like reading by the seaside, <laughs> yeah. some, terrible, some terrible news, truth about your love, saying, I'm sorry, I really did love you. Here's my backstory. And... I tried to do everything. And that is a conversion moment from Bond where he's actually has two conversion moments, right? One from this women can't do anything, blah, 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 hater, to, eh, there's something more here. Actually, I'm going to fall in love. Actually, I'm going to get out of this game all together for her. And then I'm going all the way back and I'm all in because she's dead and I can't trust anyone. And also I'm going to hunt Smirsh down with every last well-tailored stitch of my suit from there, and it gives just a whole different framing for Bond as someone who's learned to not trust anyone and keep his guard up because he let it down, and he almost got everyone killed, including himself. And certainly, I don't know if there's anything he could have done to save Vesper, but at the very least, the world was not what he thought. And it really sets up a different tone um, for the rest of the books. I think a very welcome one, and it serves the movie version of Casino Royale, and it serves Craig's... It gives Craig a lot more to do in Casino Royale yep. and then and after. And then you've intimated to me that the, the last Craig Bond is even, really pays dividends on those earlier investments. How, what else, how else do we describe this reading experience? What else about the book is worth talking about for a few minutes, Vanessa? What sticks out to you? I mean, you, you kind of touched on this already, but it is such a quick ride. Like, <clears throat> between the fact that it is, I mean, it took me, I think, all of like four or five hours to read it. And you are absolutely being propelled by the fact that the chapters are so short and you know that's going to keep happening. So I kept having that experience of like, okay, I'm going to stop here. But then I'm like, ah, six more pages. Ah, uh, eight more pages. You know, and then I would, and then boom, right. that was that. And I was done. Uh, and it was interesting because it's been so long since I read them. You know, I was, again, in sixth grade and I'm big 37 now. So it was just kind of having to, yeah, like dust off my memory a little bit about what like Fleming's version of Bond was. So it's just an interesting time trek to see this version of him that is so unpolished. That is again, so incredibly like sexist and misogynist, but to a purpose. It's, you know, it's there to like illustrate essentially his blind spot. But mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was just, it's different. It is a thing that we've both mentioned in our first recording is that the book compared to the film in particular, as you're reading it, if you're doing it backwards in particular is so unglamorous, like it's yes. just 
there is none of that sheen and you know like again like there's no cue there's no gadgetry there bond is not particularly slick about getting out of anything (laughs) he gets blown up at one point you know it's and the casino that we're at, you know, if you're watching the film versions, it's in Montenegro and it is just like the height of, you know, Lux for the most part. And then the book version is very like, it's kind of a sort of rinky hotel in like a small French seaside place, but it's not anywhere near as, you know, yeah. upscale and, and sexy. So yeah, it's it's different in that way. You, you described it as like the Reno, Nevada of France. Exactly. And that really made me laugh. I think that's the <laughs> way to think about that. it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. I, that really stuck with me. It's kind of like the third or fourth tier place that you might go. And yeah, I think that's the, the signal stylistic difference that also has, you know, content import too is how gritty and unglamorous is here. Let me read the, this is the, the first writing. paragraph. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is the first paragraph. This is the first paragraph of Bond at all. So this is really interesting to look at. So here it is. Uh, First paragraph of Casino Royale. The scent and smoke and sweat of a casino are nauseating at three in the morning. Then the soul erosion produced by high gambling, a compost of greed and fear and nervous tension becomes unbearable and the senses awake and revolt from it. Nice alliteration there. Scent and smoke and sweat. Leo Fleming's (laughs) doing some English major stuff there. I kind of like that. But you just look at the the aggregate word choice and what it conveys. We get revolt, unbearable compost soul erosion nauseating like you don't want to be here you're not nah. looking at us like you know what this is sweet i want a martini shaken not stirred and i'm going to hang out there like this is gross this is nasty this mm-hmm. is the underworld demimond of the cold war and i think that's just so fascinating to see what eventually will become which is eventually like middle-aged man wish fulfillment basically is what bond becomes at his highest of like being slick and getting all the ladies and wearing nice clothes and being good looking and jet setting around and all this stuff here you're like you've been gambling for seven hours in a row in this terrible disgusting casino with a bunch of low lives and you just want to barf and go to bed that's where we start this <laughs> mm, whole thing. yum yeah tasty yeah. and and that's from there, you, it's kind of more of the same, frankly. The the book doesn't get... It gets less glamorous, and nothing's more glamorous than what actually happens to Bond at the end. But Bond's signal virtue is he's not like a great hand-to-hand fighter, we're told. He's not a great yeah. marksman. He's not a particularly good counterintelligence agent because he really falls for the bait here in the form of Vesper Lind. Super. His ability here is to take a beating. And I'm serious. Like, that's his signal. No, really. In the first few books... That's what he's best at. Like, that's the reason he succeeds is other people would fold, and he wouldn't. He's made out of leather, which is a wonderful opening for Craig, who looks like a kind of guy that could be made out of leather in the way that Sean Connery or Pierce Brosnan uh, really wouldn't. In terms of other ideas in this book, I think the details is really interesting. At one point, Bond says, I think Vesper asks him, like, why do you care so much about the specifics? He's like, well, when you do what I do, it's a way to stay human, to care yep. about the little things. It's a way to enjoy and remind yourself that you're not just a, you're not just a blunt instrument. Um, that same phrase would be used in the movie slightly differently. Mm-hmm. A lot of exposition here. Uh, there's like so literally pages of communiques, like cable bulletins to explain yep. what's going on. Fleming's learning how to do exposition and how much he actually needs to do. Frankly, he over-determines why we need to care about Le Chief. He could have said he's the money man, and that would have yeah. been fine, which is kind of what happens in the movie. In terms of where it sits in with other spy novels, I think for me, I, you know, my favorite spy novels are the Le Carre, um, George yeah. Smiley novels, especially Tinker Taylor. And that really 
wallows in moral ambiguity. Famously, Smiley says, you know, shouldn't we just admit there's as much worth on your side as there's on mine to Carla and Tinker Taylor? And Mathis, who is his contact here, fights against that. Bond gets to that place after he's been tortured by Lashif, and he's, like, really wondering if he's ever going to serve again or walk again or, like you know, do stuff again. Let's, let's put it there, put a veil, <laughs> put a veil over that for a minute. We'll he says, <laughs> and he says, you know, you know, what's it all worth? What's it all mean? There's bad guys on our side. There's bad guys on their side. But then in the blackmailing and murder of Vesper, I think you could eventually call it murder by proxy of Vesper by yeah. Smirsh. He realizes, or his realization or his truth is that may be true that there's moral ambiguities, but there's still people out there. There's still people out there that killed the woman I love and all yeah. that other moral ambiguity gets to go away. Which I found fairly compelling, Vanessa. I don't know. I mean, maybe that came back from my um, moral grayness of the world. But if there are bad guys out there, if you're slightly less bad than they are, aren't you better? Aren't you making the world a better place? At least from Bond's yeah. point of view. Um, I think that's pretty interesting there. Anything else about the book? What Any worst parts about the book? You, you mentioned the misogyny that's latent there. It's It doesn't get completely wiped out by how it's using the book uses Bond's (laughs) misogyny against him by any stretch of the imagination. But I have to admit, I was ready for worse when I was reading the Bond novels. And I actually kind of feel like it gets worse in the subsequent Bond novels. Is that your memory of this too? Yeah, Yeah. I think so. Um, I definitely went in, like I said, the beginning of it, like there's a lot of parts knowing what was going to happen where I was like, okay, this is super misogynist because it is very, very much like women belong in the kitchen. Like the the phrase, I believe, is actually It's used. Bond says it. Or to himself or Mathis. I can't remember. He's, I think, just musing to himself on why like, oh, she's so amateur and like, why is she even here? But then there are parts that are just cringy. And but while I say that, it, I, I did absolutely have like I was the grimace emoji, like ho- like thinking any minute now it's going to get even more terrible. And it, it didn't exactly. There is a pretty atrocious like line when he's describing, you know, once he's arrived at the place where he's ready to admit that he's like attracted to her and would you yeah. know like to be with her where he describes what that would be like. Um combination of the fact that because she is so like restrained like what it would be like if she finally surrendered to him that is really gross and uses the r word in a weird way uh, yeah we hate that hate that. and that's, that's that was bad. the one sentence that i remember like highlighting in my book me like no like not no like this doesn't serve any any purpose whatsoever mm-hmm. and then but yeah all things said I, I i guess yeah i expected so much worse given when this book was published and i do think that we unfortunately see a lot more of that once he sort of found his groove, which is, you know, not great, but it is what yeah. it is. Let's end our discussion of the book portion with this question. Who, if anyone, would benefit from reading Casino Royale? I actually tell anybody who like likes Bond and is interested in reading the books to read it, period, if they don't have a backstory for like who Bond is. So really, I guess that's a fancy way of saying like really anybody who's not familiar because I do think, like, sometimes when I tell people how much I love Bond, um, they'll just be like, oh, you know, blah, blah, And they, they, their idea of him is, like, he's this, like, womanizing person mm-hmm. out to kind of kill without a cause sort of thing. And I'm like, eh, if you read Casino Royale, you will understand, again, so much of, like, why he became who he became and what the purpose was of maintaining these very superficial relationships with most women. And that is still different, I think, from the film versions, because I do think, you know, which we'll get into in a second, you just get a version of him that is both harder and softer in the films. Yeah. So I think it's interesting just to go back and read who he was sort of intended to be and, like, what he became because of this one particular character that I don't know if you're just watching the films, you will understand, like, how big a role she played, unless you know that backstory. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Let's transition to talking about the movie explicitly. I think that that same explanation or give you explanation for why someone who likes the movies might want to read the book makes it an especially fascinating moment to be adapted because because of a right situation, long story short is the someone acquired the rights to the first two Bond novels, Casino Royale, and I can't remember what the second one is off the top of my head, but then they went away, right? They didn't want to make it, but they had optioned it forever. And so they couldn't be made into a movie by the production company, who, the Broccoli Production Company, which eventually made all the Bond movies that we know, even to, even up into the most recent ones. And now yep. they're owned by HBO or Amazon, I guess, Amazon. now owns the Bond franchise. Yeah, but this so. last movie was made before that. It, they couldn't make it. And I think the world of Bond is completely different if Casino Royale is made first because they would have made it like this. Yep. They they didn't know they didn't become Doctor No ten years later. Doctor No, the first Bond movie, is eleven years after this book is made, and Doctor No is much more. The book itself is even much more like the Bond you know of, of really I would say fantasy spy novel. That's yeah. the world in which we. So it's it's a fascinating to see a great stroke of luck maybe for the Bond franchise. I don't know because here, here's what the truth is, and we were talking about this before is, in terms of single character IP. I'm not so no, not Batman. That's part of DC. Not Superman. Yeah. That's all part of DC. It's Bond and Sherlock Holmes, and I think that's the list. I think so. There are other characters, but they're not on that tier. This is the A one Mount Rushmore of single character IP, and now Sherlock Holmes in the public domain, except for the later stuff where I have feelings, which that's some weird lawsuits they got into. Otherwise, yeah. But like, this is it. This is this is a huge, huge figure. And it got told sort of in the middle and it got interrupted because of yeah. copyright that only came later. So we get the chance to recast Bond, to recast and reinvigorate the word that um, Barbara Broccoli, who's one of the production heads of um, uh, Casino Royale, really said. Because this movie comes out in 2006. And where we are in the movies of 2006 compared to where the Brosnan ones began, I think in 93 was the first Brosnan oh, one. Geez. It, it's a completely <laughs> different world. I remember the 90s. I was there. Mm -hmm. Politically, culturally, everything else, 2006 was so different and needed something else. I think the first thing we should talk about is casting because Craig is so close, much closer to the bond of the book of Casino Royale than any of the other bonds were. It makes perfect sense. 
there was some thought, and I don't know if it was a dumb show or for public relations. Yeah, we'll bring Pierce back after The World Is Not Enough or Tomorrow Never Die. I get them confused. They're Me all too. sound the same. But the last Brosnan one, he wanted $30 million and blah, blah, blah. But the truth is, Brosnan couldn't carry the franchise forward. He certainly could have been the Bond of Casino Royale. I don't know how you go backwards and have bonded you know, young yep. Pierce in this. It doesn't make any sense. But I think for me, the the nugget I read that was the most revealing is in 2002, one of the producers of the Bond movies went in with Albert and um, Barbara Broccoli to go see the Bourne identity. And they came out of that, and the producer looked at them and was like, the world has changed, and we have yep. to keep up with it. And I think that's the other influence on Casino Royale, the movie, that is not in the book at all, which is this born like this born identity like, I don't know, even the action, right? It's very down to earth. Very. It's very sort of um, Krav Maga, which is like, if you know, you know, hipster jujitsu <laughs> kind of a thing, right? Yes. Um, it's really dirty and bloody. And then the political world it drops itself into is much more complicated. There is not a Soviet oh gosh, in yeah. Casino Royale, right? I don't think. I don't think so. In fact, there's even like a phrase at one point where, I'm not that this is the same thing as what you're asking, but like where Judy Dench and, and Bond are talking and she's like, oh, I missed the Cold War. Yeah, like it, right. it, They're very clearly trying to be like, we are no longer in the setting of the old, of the books. You know, right. <laughs> this is a different place. So. Yeah. So it's, it, it's a wonderful time. And Craig, I mean, Craig, I think we need to spend a list, a, a, a moment talking about Craig in that he is much more looks like and carries himself like the blunt instrument that. M describes where yep. even physically like that famous scene that I, I guess the the production company had no idea become sort of like a meme before there were memes of Craig coming out of the ocean in his swim trunks. <laughs> yeah. He's he's in good shape but he's he looks like he could be a rugby player. He yep. looks worn. He looks like he's um he's built to use. Let's put it that way and maybe all meanings of that phrase. Uh <laughs> let put a veil over that as well. And the way he plays Bond is and, you know, sometimes the camera does stuff and people's just being on camera conveys stuff you didn't sure. really do. He looks like a hard case, but he also doesn't look like a monster. And that's Correct. the magic of Craig and that's the magic of particular roles and fit. And I think it's kind of magical. What else to say about um, Craig's Bond or, or Craig himself in this role, Vanessa? I just, I mean, we already, I guess this is sort of in the same vein, but because the idea that we get in Casino Royale, again, is that he is sort of that blunt instrument and that his real big kind of skill set at this point is like you can take a beating yeah like there is just no like i cannot in my head make it make sense for it to have been anybody but someone like craig like it's right. again the body type alone and just that certain like look and like attitude sort of swagger that he brings to the character are a thing that i was hooked from like from the moment he popped up on screen i think it, it just works so mm -hmm. so well there's a we get there's so much more action in the movie than in the mm -hmm. book. I can't. It's it's hard to describe. But I think in terms of what Craig and the and the production company is doing with Bond differently, this parkour chase sequence that yeah. begins the movie in Madagascar. This I, I wish I had the actor's name. Whoever they get to do the stunts for the guy Bond is chasing, it's unbelievably oh, great. It's Christ. a, it's a yes. <laughs> beautiful sequence, and he's yeah. I I would have broken my spine like five seconds in. But at one point, he's like jumps through a hole and like climbs up with thing in this construction site and Craig rather than try to follow him just barrels through drywall and just punches yep. a Craig shaped hole in the drywall no big deal. it's fine and that's I think that as any, much as anything is the microcosm of what Craig's bond is different than the bonds yeah. that come before Connery wouldn't have done that 
Pierce wouldn't have done that. Lazenby more. No one else would have just put their shoulder down and say, let my body take the beating, and I'm just going to get through this as much as possible. I mean, it reminds so, me a lot of that last, uh, the last Morton film. Like, he yes. literally, when they're in, uh, oh my god, I can't remember where they're at, but it's, I think, a Middle Eastern setting... Um, Morocco maybe I can't remember but yeah it's that like I'm gonna go through drywall (laughs) it's very brusque very physical like super super physical so stylistically it's very much whatever gets the job the job done and I'm not in the business of protecting my face or body like and and, and frankly he's pretty (laughs) reckless with himself at the beginning oh extremely um in a way that is pretty striking so I guess our, our the question should be is this a good adaptation and that's different than if it's a good movie Right, because it could be a good ad- good adaptation in a or a good movie and a bad adaptation and vice versa. But is this a good movie? Is this a good adaptation, Vanessa? How would we rate this as an adaptation of Casino Royale? Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit, I guess, biased, and that's why I'm here. But like, I I'm I I think they're wonderful adaptations. If for nothing else, again, because I think they took what the book already, you know, kind of set out to do, which is to establish, you know, motivations for Bond, but just takes that deeper and really successfully brought it to a different place in the world by adding layers to both the evil nature of the the villain, you know, himself, and then just creating different motivations for the way that Bond interacts with Vesper and how that's going to take him carrying forward. Uh, again, and I don't, I feel like we don't see some of that blatant misogyny, not that there's none there, you know, I, I meant mm. there is, I'm sure, but it just, I, I actually love what they did with Bond and the moments that they did add to the film with, in his, like, interactions with Vesper that I think are kind of crucial to understanding the type of Bond that we, we were going to keep seeing with Daniel Craig, which is this person that is very much more, like, calculating and cunning. He definitely is very, again, smooth and very, like, observant more so than than mm-hmm. perhaps the one we see in the books, but that also has a certain tenderness to him that I don't think we see in the books, which I I guess is not maybe doesn't speak specifically to whether it's a good adaptation in its you know, the way it adheres to the books, but that I think is very successful. Yeah, and I think both of our favorite additions, um additions with an A, not an E, mm-hmm. to the movie is a particular scene with Vesper and Bond. Do you want to walk yes. walk walk folks through why this is our favorite scene? So A, I mean, in case it's not clear, like the, the Craig Daniel Craig's version of Bond just like goes through more stuff in Casino Royale, yeah. and in the the book version, essentially the whole gist is that he needs to go to this casino and he play this game and, and beat Lashif, loses at first, then wins. It's kind of supposed to be over from there, and then that's when Vesper quote unquote gets kidnapped, etc. And in the Bond version, we see there's actually more attempts on his life, like in between and after. And this results at one point at Vesper basically having to kind of come to Bond's rescue. And then through a, you know, a tussle and lots of physicality in a fight, she ends up witnessing Bond kill someone. Like, so she sees a death and sees her, her first dead body. And that then translates to this epic, like just very, very, the scene that like sticks out in my brain, favorite scene from the movie where she is, you know, Bond goes to see her in her hotel room. And she's just in the shower, like fully clothed, sitting, you know, at the bottom of the shower, just crying. Mm. And Bond very like smoothly, you know, takes off his bow tie and, you know, sits next to her. And they're both just sitting there with the water dripping. It's a very like tender moment. And then he just leans in and sort of like, you know, pulls her to him with no like sexual overtones. It is literally just like, I'm here. You saw a terrible thing. And that I think is, you know, different. There's a couple of moments, that's one, and there's another moment where he comes home. They have adjoining rooms because they're cover and the story is that they're a married couple, you know, whatever. That's that's the cockamamie of the of the movie that's that's mm-hmm. part of the fun. 
and he comes back from gambling or drinking or whatever that he's been doing, and he opens the door to her room, and she's asleep and looking, you know, resplendently beautiful asleep. Mm-hmm. And in a different version of a Bond movie, he makes a move there, right? Oh, yes, exactly, yes. And in a different move, in a different Bond version, in a different version of Bond, in that scene where she's in the shower, I mean, she's, I mean, we know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. She's in the shower crying, wet, half naked. A different version of this, he makes a move, and he doesn't in either case. Not that he's not open to it or whatever, we don't know. But it's very much like hands off, let her have her space, and you know, take care of her yeah. outside of wanting to get her in the sack, which is fascinating to see. And I think they play with us. I think they do that intentionally. I think they come to yeah, the Casino so Royale too. knowing what we expect. And in an earlier sequence... He is putting the moves on this really beautiful woman who is the, I think, wife. Wife, yeah. Of a Greek person that he needs information from. He seduces her, gets her ready to go. But as soon as it's non-instrumental for him to go to bed with her, he bolts. And he doesn't, He, you know, he leaves her champagne and caviar and he's out. So it's a different understanding of his relationship to his own sexuality and his relationship to women. And I think it works. And I, I think one thing we were both wondering about we were really looking through our eyes or reading through our fingers in the book, but I think we both would have been really hurt to come back to watch the movie because we both hold it in such high esteem and have like mm-hmm. a bunch of problematic faves, I guess, to put yep. on there. And <laughs> I, on the whole, I mean, it's a spy movie and people get murdered. I don't want to tell you like that's what you're yeah. in for. <laughs> but outside of that, I didn't have a lot of cringeworthy stuff, to be honest with you. Nope, uh, you, what was on your list? Anything? Yeah, I mean, again, I expected, I, I, it had been, I, I told Jeff this last time, I, in my mind, all of the Bond films came out in, like, the last, quote-unquote, several years, and I was like, right. wait, oh, six? Like, I was graduating from college. Um, so then I had to kind of go in with the, uh-oh, and yeah, even in his relationship with the, that woman, the, the married woman, everything is yeah. very above, like, you know, consensual, I guess, is, like, the yes. best way that I can say it. That's, like, the big thing for me. Uh, especially compared to some of the grosser parts of the book. And in that way, it, it you know, it, it yeah, that's like everybody is there because they want to be sort of thing. And it's mm-hmm. fine. And yeah, I, I appreciated that element. I, I thought I was going to be way more let down. Yeah. Um. So so I think that piece, it does better than the source material. I think that works. I think it, it takes the core of the Vesper Bond relationship and builds it out more in the way that we care about. Yeah. Uh, other things it does better, I think the switch from, po- from Baccarat to poker makes a lot of sense because it is a combination oh gosh, of skill yeah. and... It is a interpersonal dynamic, so you can get Lashif and Bond in the same room. This is always a problem with these kinds of movies, where there's a real bad guy and a real good guy. If they're in the same room, you want them in the same room sort of butting against each other, but why not just shoot the person, right? It's, if it's Extremely. It's, so yeah. it's you have, you have to do all of this machinations to get them in the same room where they can talk and have a relationship and, and pairing. You know, the, the classic one in my mind is this the scene between De Niro and Pacino and Heat, where in the di- they're in the diner kind of staring at uh, each other. Yeah. But this gives them a, an excuse to do that. And the other thing, the second best casting, and Bond is so important to cast right that it kind of everyone else pales in comparison. Sure. But Mads Mikkelsen as Lashif is oh unbelievable. He, it's his first big role. And frankly, it's kind of the role that all of his other roles are at least in some sense, like <laughs> casting against or like, <laughs> yeah. if he's not in the pigeonholes, you're acting to being in the pigeonhole because he's unbelievably awesome. And apparently... There was no other second choice. Like he'd been in yeah. a couple of Danish movies and the casting director was like, I don't know what you're doing next, Mads, but you're getting on a plane and coming to wherever they film this, Montenegro or someone else, and you're in yeah. this. There's nobody else. For Craig, they're like Henry Cavill, yep. 22, young, so could have been a young Bond, but he's too pretty, Vanessa. I mean, that's yeah, just I he's so. just too pretty. 
Yeah, I think so. I think he's too pretty. And that is as a person who finds him extremely pretty. Um, I I don't think he's right for that. I, right. I, it's funny because the version of him now, it's like, oh, man, because he's gotten Maybe. significantly, right. for lack of a better term, like bulkier. But no, Craig, Craig's, Craig is attractive. Let me be, you know, mm-hmm. clear. But he's not pretty. And right. it works. Uh, Ava Grain, Gruen, I can't remember. She, her last name is Swedish, so it's not green, yeah. even though it looks that way. She's wonderful um, in this role. Has a really unusual look, which I think is is remarkable. She has these giant, like, anime eyes. Yep. And she goes on to play Miss Peregrine in Miss Peregrine's Home yeah, for exactly. Peculiar Children, <laughs> which is also, like, you want to be beautiful and striking, but also kind of weird. And yeah. I think that's really cool in this particular movie, and she's great. We get um, Jeffrey Wright as Felix Leiter. I love a nice choice. There's a weariness to to, to Jeffrey Wright's portrayal of Lighter. <laughs> yeah. That is so charming. I want more of Lighter all the time. Jeffrey Wright's Lighter in all these movies, I find myself saying. Um, and then Judy Dench's M. This is our first Judy Dench's M yes. moment, which I had I had not put together because already she had already been M for so long. But this is the, the thing that she chose to. Uh, this is the the way they choose to portray him. So we get a. a a gender piece that's different from movies yep. that's come before. She's an older woman, but she's also Judy Dench. She's just awesome. I don't know she's what else. Judy Dench. What, yeah, like, why, why do we like Judy Dench's M? What does she give this? It's just a bit of a like. A, I mean, I guess self assuredness. She also just like like the the F's were out of stock the day she came yes. into the world, and then <laughs> right. she never chose to purchase anymore. Like. Very, 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 like, we needed a presence that was going to be able to go toe-to-toe with right. Bond's character. And I love, A, that they didn't choose a man, that they chose a woman, and a, a one whose portrayal is very, like, yeah, you may think you're fancy, but, like, I'm still M. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love that that presence. The emotional core of the book remains. The emotional core is yeah. Vesper and Bond. And that stays largely the same the difference is there's some there's some mechanics at the end that are a little bit different i talked about how the vesper suicide is very proactive and almost i don't know pastoral i don't even know how to say it there's a sort of quiet tragic beauty to vesper suicide and in the movie i think the one inheritance that the the movie cannot shake for bond is it's big it's big. It's spectacular. Yeah. You need these giant action sequences. That's what people come for. I do not think you could film a rough and tumble down on the streets version of the book of Christina Royale as it's on the page or even with some minor alter- alterations, even yeah. with Craig and people would go see it because this was the highest grossing bond. This is a huge hit. I think that's the other thing yeah. we're saying. And it launched the next phase of bond. And these are all quantum souls comes out next. It had a writer strike problem. That was a little, yeah. that's a bit of a tough hang. But I really like Spectre. I really like oh, Skyfall. And well, the last cool. and the last one, um, which I cannot... No Time to Die? Die another... It's, we're, we're dying today. <laughs> don't die. Please don't die. No Please don't die, die, I think what it's called. <laughs> Please don't die. <laughs> Please yes, don't no, die. No Time to Die. <laughs> no Time to Die. Please don't die. I think it's what it should be called. But these are good movies, and people like them, and they've been super successful. So that's important to say, but part of it is people come for the spectacle. And one of the reasons they didn't release... Please don't die to streaming only. <laughs> is you want to see this on a big screen if you can. You want to see yeah. him jumping off stuff and rappelling and all this sort of beautiful stuff. Mm-hmm. So they need more action sequences. And I don't think we can get this end of this movie being Bond and Vesper falling in love by the seashore. And then she drinks like some powder and that's it. Yeah. And scene. We just can't do it. And I totally get that. So instead we get Vesper 
basically betraying Bond by taking the money he won that he was supposed to give back to the Treasury because she's going to give it to Smirsh. It's all kind of ridiculous. Long story short, at a critical moment where Bond could save her or she could be saved or she could escape from this collapsing Venice building, she turns a key that she can't get out or she could still get out, I guess. She could always unturn it. But she's signaling to Bond that I am dying here. And the key difference there is that Bond goes for, I don't know, was it a 10-minute stretch of the movie, Vanessa, where he thinks Vesper's just straight up shivved him in the back, essentially, right? And he is as mad as you've ever seen mad. uh, There's much more of that in the film, yeah. Much more of that in the film, because in the book, he doesn't know anything's gone until Vesper's body is just lying there and she's written Mm -hmm. this note. And he has to hear from M all the backstory. And then, like, in that moment, he's already hardened and comes back. But I think it's not... And again, I had I had not read the book at the time. But it feels a little confusing. It doesn't... It's not so concentrated as it is in the book where you get that punch to the sternum, like, right away. You know, there's, a, there's a reversal and then like sort of a double reversal. And I think it still works. Like, don't get me wrong. But I think in terms of the purity of Bond's tragic experience the book is better but i don't think the movie had a choice are you with me on that vanessa i'm not sure i kind of talked around my point there but I'm no not sure and that I, we, we talked about this before too it's like I, I i'm of two minds with it which is that i think that the suicide the way it plays out in the books hits harder again if you're reading it because yeah. you see that he has literally just no clue he is ready to marry this woman and again walk away from this double o life and other than kind of being a little bit confused by her sort of ups and downs leading up to this moment does not is not thinking oh it's because she's about to betray me he yeah. just thinks you know she's going through it and so when you see it and you know she even arranged for like the, the caretakers if of the place that they're staying to be the ones to like she had an early yeah. call scheduled right. so that bond wouldn't be the one to find her body and then you read the note and obviously you get his internal monologue like that is very powerful yeah but what really... i did find is that for me, and this is just, I think, a byproduct of the fact that the book is pretty short, but it sort of feels like Bond's doing his thing, doing his thing, doing his thing, and then like a switch flips, and then, of course now he realizes that you know he he likes her, and then he loves her, and he's ready to marry her. It feels like a little bit quick, where all yeah, of a sudden they're right. like... And, and, and they do then, of course, spend more time at the seaside, but the films between like that shower scene onward, I think you just get, for me anyway, I'm a very visual person. It's a little bit more pain. Like you just get a lot more like, I guess, tender moments in the film. Like you're literally watching them do stuff. And then of course you need that big visual element. So it's like, it works better for the books and I like it. And I'm glad that they didn't try to do that for the film. Yeah. But be- I like the way that they went and that it made me feel a thing. Yeah, I, th- I think both choice. I mean, the book is the book, but the choice in yeah. the movie is understandable. And I, again, I'm not a screenwriter. I don't do this for a living. But from an experiential point of view, it's hard to see how they could do much different. Let's pick up some random observations because, you know, like, oh, let's be honest. These are silly kind of movies. Like, they're not realistic. Yes. They're they're speculative fiction. What if there was Batman who worked for the British Secret Service? It's kind of what these <laughs> yeah, things do. Basically. And the consequence of that leads you into some weird places. Now... One of the things that stays very similar, and it's the toughest part of both the book and the movie, is let's just call it um, Bond on the Chair, where <laughs> Le Chiffre, you know, you know, he gives a great villain monologue, frankly, about why do people screw around with torture when all you need to do is 
essentially get a get a man's parts yep. hanging down and something to hit it with and Basically. you're like yeah you're right which is funny because <laughs> all subsequent bond franchises will do all the cockamamie like yep, rube them. goldberg machination so here we're like a man in a chair and someone with something to hit him in the balls with and in the book and movie I just don't know. Look, I have some familiarity with his equipment. Let me just put it out there. <laughs> you take four of the cracks that Lashif gives Bond. That's I, it. I, I don't know, man. I, I may, Game I'm over. not. I'm, I'm not a urologist. I don't know. But it just feels like I don't know that you're coming back from uh, from from your country visit there a little bit. So <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's very tough. Now they try. I think in the book, especially Bond, is very very worried. Oh, in yeah. the moment and after like is there do i have what's no the out. future of this gonna be <laughs> yeah Wait, in a way that they don't mess with in the movie because it be- no. it's grim man like it is very 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 grim stuff but i just don't know that especially in the timeline in the movie he's like romping around with vesper in the icu bed he was just in and we don't have any sense 45 of 45 like, seconds later yeah yeah right <laughs> exactly. I, it takes me 72 hours to recover from a couple of martinis anymore. And I just don't know that I just, we're talking six to eight months. Like this is an Achilles rupturing situation. So that's one there as well. Yeah. Lashif's bleeding eye. Um, yeah. Mads Mikkelsen is an unbelievable face. I, I don't think there's any other way to put it. He looks like a menacing fish. And I don't mean that in a, uh, he's both terrifying and kind yeah. of like, soft and moist and wet in the, in the way they yeah, shoot the him mouth. especially here oh. the mouth this really thin piscatorial slash yeah. of a mouth that goes on and in the book he has the inhaler which is a nice yeah. touch in the book because he's human but it also has this like darth vadery quality yeah. of mo- <laughs> noticing his breathing all the time Bane. yeah <laughs> but in the movie they decide to add to you already have mads mickelson's face you already have the inhaler they decide to add a hurt eye i assume he's blind it's a very opaque an opaque eye that also will just randomly bleed and i think with a bond villain you get one thing you either get (laughs) you get you get the benzedrine or the bleeding eye you don't do both and that was just a little too i don't think you needed i don't think it added anything i don't even think mads mickelson needs the eye just mads mickelson saying i'm gonna end you bond i'm in i that's all i need I thought about it later, and the only thing I can kind of, because as I also told Jeff in recording numero uno, it's like him, Mickelson, and then also people like Javier Bardem are the yes. kind that like, I'm, I'm so sorry, sir, because I'm sure both of you are very, very lovely people. But if I see you in the street, like I am. I'm tasering you immediately. I'm tasering you. Yeah, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm getting out because they terrify me and like the simplicity of like what they bring to the screen. I sometimes wonder if they were maybe trying, because there is that element where they, again, are trying, I think, to inject some of the like bond as a little bit green i Uh, when i thought about it they essentially use the bleeding eye as a thing to point out that like bond got overconfident in thinking he knew his tell hmm. because when the eye bleeds so like okay maybe but otherwise it really does just feel like i'm evil and this is coding to show you that i'm the bad guy yeah and you know as we get into more and more i guess sophisticated understanding of representation does every bad guy have to be physically disabled absolutely you know i mean it's it's a little bit like yeah Okay, I, I get this. Um, I think the other thing that struck me is this is 2006, and it may not be the last one, but if it's not, it's the last big one of the pre-smartphone era of having to make movies like yeah. this, where you've got an iPhone or an Android phone or whatever and all the things that does with it. There's even one, like the product placement. God love product placement. It's so love funny it. to watch. <laughs> and here, like Bond has had a, at least 
of the modern Craig Bonds has a long um, relationship with Sony. So on any Sony product placement you can it's get. It's there. It's there. And there's this one moment where Bond holds up his feature phone, right? This is before. <laughs> and it shows him like doing his Google Map thing. And we're supposed to be like, oh, how cool that is. And all yeah. that looks like is like how rinky-dink things were there. Yeah. And like how the text messaging was like one word. One word, yeah. Because it took like 48 characters to, to, to text someone tap, tap, ellipsis. Tap, 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 yeah. yeah. Very, very tough stuff to do. The other thing that struck me as well is like we weren't quite in the hacking solves all problems moment nope. of movie making, but we're uh-huh. almost there. But the the funny the funny like paleolithic thing Bond has to do, he has to go to M's house to do the hacking he wants to do. He can't oh, do it from right. some remote terminal. <laughs> nope. So he just like shows up in Judy Dench's house, and it, I'm surprised M just didn't shoot him through the brain. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Doesn't if she if she is really like the head of the secret service for the UK and there's some shadowy dude in her room, the yeah, first thing she does it and cold shoots him in the throat, right? She yep. is dead. So you're that's another gone. one. Absolutely. The, the last smartphone one. And then the bornification of Bond. And I think that's really fascinating to see that you know, born I, this is this is non-controversial for me. In terms of a movie, the born identity is a slicker movie. That is a railroad ride of a movie. Oh my gosh. Now, in terms of hanging out, Bond's a better hang. Yeah. Bourne's a better ride. Is that is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. The Bond movies, I think, have much more. You know, there's especially the in again, um, Craig's version, even in the torture scene, like he's extremely. He's always got a joke. He's always got something yes. snarky to say. There's a lot more like humor, right? It's not like necessarily a humor movie, but there's there's funny bits to it. It's got a levity, even mm-hmm. you know, in the darker moments of the films. Whereas the Bourne films are, I think, it's just much more serious in tone and really, um, but like keep you absolutely gripped. In particular, now if you look at you know their topic, <laughs> there's yes. a little bit evergreen in a few different ways yes. that are yeah, I think much more just like suspenseful, I guess. But. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, so but they're, they're very much riding along the same rails and taking yeah. different strategies. But uh, dealing with the, the essential truth of what people want is a little more plausibility, if not realism. Um, both emotionally and logistically yeah. in what's actually happening on the screen. And, and if let's let's transition for a moment, talking about the future of Bond, where Bond is right now, and then Bond within the, like, the larger cultural landscape. Because I think one problem that, frankly, Bourne and Bond have right now is nothing within their own IP, but what's happening in Marvel land or Game of Thrones land or sure. DC land, which is... 
superhero action heroes that can do things that are beyond the realm of believability. Because that's yeah. Bond and Born to a different degree. They live in our world, right? Yeah, they're human. <laughs> they're human, and they don't require a big what if to get there. And the big what if is what if there was a purple demigod who wanted to destroy half of the beings yeah. in the universe and there were magic stones, but also we happen to have some people that were just strong enough to win. How exactly. would that work? Bond and Bourne can't do that. So I'm very interested to see. Now, maybe they can coexist. Maybe you have a different frame of mind saying, if I'm going to see a Bourne, and again, Bourne is long in the tooth because of the central premise of that can only go so yeah. long. But with Bond, it's like, okay, maybe I want something different. Maybe I do want to have to suspend a little bit less disbelief and recognize the, my world in itself. So do you think, again, I haven't seen the movie, and this is sort of a problem for us to talk about this, because you seem to think that they leave breadcrumbs for where Bond can go from here. But outside of that, outside, let's say that it was just that the last movie and there were no breadcrumbs. Is there a place for Bond in our, in our cultural firmament at this point, Vanessa? I think there could be, but it would revolve, it would create, I don't know. Um, so yeah, without trying to get spoilery, there are, there's a really big element to the film that really puts a cap on, okay. like, we're not gonna see like a version of Bond as what you might think. And again, I don't want to spoil it. So like, we'll just kind of leave it there. There are a lot more, and this is not a spoiler because it's, you just know this, there's women in the book yes. that are sorry, like in a double O capacity. And so there's been some, you know, we've already had the talk of like, could Idris be the next Bond? And then if not, could it be a woman? And it would involve essentially starting either from scratch and kind of ignoring the Bond, the the Craig era. You know, Mm -hmm. like it's been like obviously the same thing as what he did when he started his version of it. Or taking it in a completely different direction where we're now, again, maybe following a different, like a, yeah, I guess the person that comes after Right. Them. And I do, the one thing I think you could potentially do, which I guess Craig's films already did and a lot of what, you know, Bourne's films maybe tried to accomplish is just that because we're in a different place and there is just this huge reckoning with, I mean, you name it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> racial, gender, whatever. Everything. Prejudice, bias, oppression. Yeah. There is a way I think that could be interesting to at least introduce something like this that addresses some of those blind spots. If if I don't even know that blind spot is a is a great term, so mm-hmm. there's probably a better one. That's you know just proving my point. But that also yeah dives into the place that Craig kind of leaves us with, which is that even the folks that we think of as the good guys are often doing a thing. <laughs> right. That is in the service of like a bigger, more evil, you know, like like the United States, and that's mm-hmm. that. There's a place to go there, I think, where you can explore a little bit more of that ambiguity that they've already kind of gotten to. Yeah, I think mm. as long as there is international discord, yeah. which there's going to exactly. be, there is a place <laughs> to there's a place to explore what happens extra diplomatically between countries and between regimes and yes. between organizations. But the Bond character feels like it's not the vehicle for that in, in a way that Correct. we've come to understand you that, that you could still do that there. And Craig Vanessa, himself has been asked, by the way, just yeah. as a last thing to end on, is like, do you think that the next Bond should be a woman? And his response initially was no, which had me all kinds of like, no, don't do this to me. Like, and then... Not at two, Craig. Like, and at the very end, you know, like at the end, you're going to do this to me. And then his response was that, like, instead of maybe always trying to just, like, stick a woman in a thing a man has done, like, maybe we should just be writing, like, awesome, wonderful, dynamic roles for women where, like, they get to be the star of the show from the beginning. Right. And that, I think, has some truth to it. 
Yeah, I think that has that's a that's an interesting way of thinking about expanding the role set rather than switching out pieces yeah. um, of an existing role set. Vanessa, we did it. I think our second recording was better than our first one. I do. I like yeah. it. We had a good dry run. Thank you all so much for for listening. Be sure to subscribe if you like Adaptation Nation. You can email us, adaptationnation at podcast.com. We've got feedback, ideas, tidbits, whatever else you want to let us know. Uh, we're going to be back pretty soon with another one. This is something that just came out. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tease this a little bit. Do you know what the next one is? Don't say if you do. Do you know what, we're do- what I'm doing next with uh, Jen Northington? No. Okay, yeah. But it's uh, something that's very important to her. It's my first reading experience of this thing, and it's coming out today as we record. Uh, so now it's going it to be is. very, very, very current. <laughs> yeah, yes. I, I was spoiling it for you. And you don't necessarily know, listener, what day we're recording on. So maybe there's a little bit of fudge factor there. But I'm really looking forward to it. Vanessa, what a great hang. Bond, turns out Super. it's great. Super.